This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. How many times have you heard, what would the pandemic be like without technology the way that we have it now? It would be difficult in one sense, and this is usually the way that everything focuses, that we're able to communicate by way of video conferencing for work, by way of even Zoom or FaceTime so that you can see family members and anyone who might wind up being a little bit more isolated than they really want to be right now. Those are all positives. Being able to work from home. We couldn't do this in the 80s. You could not. What, would you get on the phone and go, yep, still here. By the way, do you know what my phone bill is going to be at the end of this month? It's usually about 110 bucks for my phone bill. It's going to be huge. That's what we would be doing. So those are the positive parts of technology. There are some negatives about where we sit in the way that the pandemic plays out on things like social media. Because it's very easy to become divided. How polarized are we right now? We are as divided as we've ever been, as far as I'm concerned. And that, again, has its positives and negatives. If you want to sit down and have a debate with somebody, have a conversation with somebody, and you have differing opinions, that tends to be a good, fiery conversation. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're trying to organize everybody in order to be on the same page, be on the same team, it gets tough. It gets tough to take a look at the polarized landscape and figure out what to do. An open letter was written to the community from Southwestern Public Health today, and it tackled that. And Southwest Public Health, as much as they haven't seen the numbers that Middlesex London has seen in the whole number, when you look at per capita, They're in a battle themselves right now. They're seeing rising case counts in places like Elmer and St. Thomas and Woodstock and Bayham and all of those different areas. Joining us right now is the Medical Officer of Health with Southwest Public Health, Dr. Joyce Locke. Dr. Locke, thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Mike. We know that we have divided opinions. We're human beings. That's kind of how we run day to day. When you look at writing this open letter to the community, what did you want to convey in it? Well, our community has been struggling with COVID and its impacts to our lives now for many months. Uh, I think we talk a lot about COVID fatigue. And I think as we move beyond our fears of COVID to understanding that for many of of us, it's just a mild disease. Uh, and we tend to get better quite quickly and quite well. Uh, I think there's become a lot of differing opinions about what to do and in terms of how we as a society manage COVID. And, uh, and these, uh, sometimes these different opinions have been clashing. Um, I think the key message for all of us is that, yeah, for many of us, this is going to be a mild illness, but as our cases increase, Uh, We're definitely going to have more people who have very serious illness. We're going to have more people who end up in hospital uh, and more people that end up in the intensive care unit. And uh, we don't 
we do all have a shared interest in being sure that health care is there for our loved ones when we need it and that it's not our particular loved one that ends up being very, very ill and possibly dying. So we hope that we can um, come up with uh, an agreement from all of us that even though we may not all agree on the right way to move forward, we do all have a common desire to protect the community and the people we love. And hopefully well, we can work together on that. That's well said. Everybody absolutely wants to protect their loved ones, doesn't want to put them into any kind of harm's way. But you have some very clear-cut I don't believe this is the right way to do it, or I do believe this is the right way to do it. How do you deal with that? Do you hope that everybody grabs an oar and, and rows, or, or or what do you do? Well, that's well said, Mike. Um, for sure, we know that uh, we are experiencing a surge in cases. We are well into wave two. Um, our summit, we've had some of the highest numbers per day that we've had so far this year. And uh, all of those are signs that we will end up with sicker people. Um, and we all do know that we have what it takes to bring the numbers down. Uh, we flattened the curve last spring. We flattened the curve uh, last August when we had our cases. So I would say we all have an interest to protect those that we love. And let's get down and buckle down to we know to those simple things we know can make a difference. Dr. Joyce Locke joining us, Medical Officer of Health with Southwest Public Health. When you look at, at your area, do you know what is leading to the spread? Can we boil it down to, hey, a lot of it's coming here, or a lot of it's coming here? Is there anything definitive? Well, I think I think we've moved beyond that. It, before, when there were just a few cases here and a few cases there, we could connect the dots and say, oh, it's in this little subsection and it, we due to this. What we're beginning now to see is that people are getting it and they don't know where. So we definitely have evidence that COVID is in our communities across the whole health unit, no matter what neighborhood you live in. And uh, people have to start to behave like each and every person they meet could possibly be carrying COVID. Um, so things have changed a bit. We, we really do need to take those actions that we learned earlier in the spring and in the summer. We really need to make sure that we do stay six feet apart and that we wear a face covering when indoors that covers our nose and mouth. Um, it's uh, getting more important now than ever because we are seeing community spread. You do deal with parts of your community that, that have kind of been against that and have been very outspoken, maybe for religious reasons. Is there a, a special kind of appeal to groups that maybe have, have not wanted to adhere to things like that? Or is this an open letter that you hope everybody just reads and says, you know what, we got to do this? I think it does raise uh, the issue and it makes everybody aware that um, there are dissenting opinions. And unfortunately, sometimes now the dialogue is getting to be a little unpleasant. And this is not the time for that kind of extra stress for everybody. Um, I think we need to find avenues where we can um we can raise our opinions in in a in a manner that 
allows other people perhaps to listen and to act on them. But right now we are in a pandemic. We are in a, uh, an emergency across the province. And I think we do know what basic actions can stop this pandemic. And so, yes, let's put our differences aside. That's a call for me. Let's be caring and, and loving for one another. And let's try and keep each other safe. And that's to do the little things, stay six feet apart, wear a mask, wash your hands, all the little things that we've been hearing all along, right? Yeah, and and it's getting more important now than ever to really stay only in your um, household circle and not to, I know we've had several cases um, come and multiple cases come from social gatherings where people got together with other people they knew and they thought were all healthy, but in the end, somebody had COVID and it spread to multiple families. Um, and then from there to other multiple families. So um, it's back down to uh, just staying uh, and keeping your social activities within the confines of your household. Um, and that will make Christmas a bit different this year, um, but um, I think it's important to keep our loved ones safe. Dr. Locke, one more thing, and we're talking with Dr. Joyce Locke, Medical Officer of Health with Southwest Public Health. Southwest Public Health has put an open letter to the community in their region basically saying, hey, here's here's the stuff we've got to do. We might have differing opinions, but this is starting to get more than unnerving in their community and it's more than unnerving in and it seems every community with how this virus is spreading the last thing is middlesex london moved into orange as of midnight this last night and there is talk that hey well orange might not be the last thing you've been in orange for a little while how concerned are you that that you could go to red we are concerned. Uh, we definitely have seen a surge in cases over the last few days. Um, we ha have seen cases that you know we know show that there's community transmission. Um, we also know that to, that if people don't step up and really each and every one of them try hard to prevent the spread, that uh, the only way to do it is to enforce more closures uh, and, so that people really can't um, get together uh, any more than necessary. It's the holiday season. We really don't want to see that happening locally. So, yes, it's a step, it's a cry, it's an ask for everybody to buckle down and stay apart and wash your hands and only go out for things that are really needed and necessary, and hopefully we can stay out of red. But at the moment, it is a concern. Well, Dr. Locke, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for even raising the issue of, hey, we've all got differing opinions, but let's figure out what can help. And uh, it's time to start rowing the boat in the same direction because there isn't a lot of rowing in the same direction in some ways. We really appreciate the time. Thanks so much, and please keep safe. Take care, Mike. That is Dr. Joyce Locke, Medical Officer of Health with Southwest Public Health. And that's essentially what they've said, that – we know that there are differing opinions, but this seems to go back to one thing, and you're going to hate it if you don't like hearing me say it. But if somebody came to you and said, here are the little things that, that you could do, and you could save that person's life right over there, are you going to say no? 
And I know that somebody is going to want to turn this into a, well, look, at the, the government's trying to put that aside for a second. If you could do these things and it saved that person's life, I don't care whether you know them or not, that person right over there, would you do it? And if you say, no, I don't get it. And if you start saying, well, this study, that's it. Put that down for a second, okay? Don't worry about that. There's one question. If you did these little things that aren't hard, they're not hard, they're not painful in any way. If you did these things and it could save that person's life over there, would you do it? And I still don't understand people who say no. I don't get it. And I never will. And a lot of them like to argue and throw videos of chiropractors at me and things like that. I don't get it. That person over there, you want to save their life? I know I do. Talk to anybody who's had a family member or a friend who's had COVID-19 and it hasn't been so mild. Talk to them. We've talked to them on the show. This is all that is being said. You might have a differing opinion. That's fine. That's fine. But let's not make each other uneasy. Let's look at what the scientists are saying. Let's get through this. And then we can go back to having differing opinions and sitting on bar stools and arguing those opinions until very late in the night. That'll come. It's not here now. So what if we were in the position that England was? How optimistic would you be feeling? Because over the last month, we have still been in our tunnel that is 2020, but the light light's gotten a little bit brighter. A couple of weeks ago, an announcement from Pfizer. A week ago, an announcement from Moderna, AstraZeneca. These are names that, yeah, they've been out there, but, boy, they roll off the tongue now, don't they? And that light's been getting a little bit brighter. Well, how bright is that light in England where they have approved vaccines, where they have the ability to manufacture vaccines? We want to welcome back someone who has been on this show quite a few times, kind of keeping us up to date on these sorts of things. Leanne Stanford who, full disclosure, is my sister-in-law, but is someone who is very tied to the science community. Leanne, how are things with you? Well, things are fine with us. Um, you know, we're happy. When we last spoke, we were just about to go into lockdown 2.0, as it became called, and um, we've come out of that now. It seems to have made a, a bit of a difference, and then, you know, top add on top of that, all of the uh, new information about the virus or the um, vaccine and things are, you know, it's looking up that way. Um, It's just that it's a typical Christmas time in England. So today here it was dark at 10 to 4 and uh, light this morning at about 10 to 8. So it's dark and cold and damp. But we've got, as you say, a little bit of light at the uh, end of the tunnel. So now that lockdown is not in place in the way that it was, how does that change your way of life? Well, you can go to a restaurant if you want to have something to eat. If you eat inside, 
you can have only members from your family or your immediate bubble. Uh, if you want to meet people who are, let's say, your friends, you know, workmates, something like that, you've got to eat outside. Um, and then there, because the pub culture is so big here in England, they have had to make definitions of what a substantial meal is. So you can't just go and buy a whole bunch of drinks and have a couple bags of chips. You've got to actually have a substantial meal. So there are definitions for that. Um, and that is sort of where we are at the minute with that. All the you know, grocery stores and things like that have remained open. Um, a lot of the shops have reopened um, just in time for a sort of Christmas rush. And um, the online market, if we call it that, is um, going crazy where you have delivered. I live in a village very close to Cambridge. We have 6,000 people. There must be... I don't know, 15 or 20 delivery guys that you see regularly dropping off parcels from, you know, random places. So, um, yeah, it's it's a different world, but it's and it's going to be a different Christmas. But uh, I think everybody's sort of resigned to that fact now. Leanne Stanford joining us from England. Okay, let's talk about attitudes in England now that vaccines have been approved. What do you find people are saying? Well, I, as, as you mentioned, I'm sort of part of the scientific community, and all of our friends and things like that are part of the scientific community. Um, the area where we are is quite rich academically. There's a lot of PhDs, a lot of scientists, a lot of computer programmers you know, highly educated people. And so the uptake of a vaccine will be very high in that group. Um, I've looked up some numbers for you on England in general. And um, it's the uh, government has said to, to effectively develop a herd immunity, you need 70% of your population immunized. And we've got... Um, approval ratings, if you want to call that, that give us about 65%. So there are still a substantial number of people that are hesitant about taking vaccines. And all of that uh, can be linked to the anti-vax movement and the, uh, you know, discredited research that came out of Britain about 20 years ago. So they're still trying to deal with educating people about how vaccines work. The other side is people are worried about how quickly it has come to market because this is setting world records uh, for its level of um, production. You know, even, even the idea of how you go about making a vaccine so quickly, how you learn about the disease at the basic level, how you get all the safety stuff done in essentially 10 months. And um, so there's going to be an education program about that as well, I'm sure. So in terms of being able to get a vaccine, we keep hearing all these rollout plans. We hear them from the provincial government. We hear them from the federal government. Everybody's talking rollout plans because it gives gives a positive thing to talk about, an optimistic thing to talk about. What is happening right now 
in England? Well, it's all go. The first sets of, so they got the vaccine um, a couple days ago. It has to be stored under very specific conditions at 90, minus 70 degrees in liquid nitrogen. And so that keeps it safe. It doesn't allow it to, um, you know, it, it won't break down. Um, and then from that, it can be kept in a normal freezer for five days. Each vial is um, has about five doses in it, so they can do it. And and those are are similar types of things that they use for other types of vaccines that people are more used to taking. And um, but they're going to start hopefully tomorrow. And there's a, a widely published um, sort of. Uh, set of criterion of who who will get it when and uh and then with the caveat that well you know we're we're sort of trying to do this that we've never done before so be flexible with it so uh you know when you've got they've they've assigned a minister in the government there's now a minister for vaccine um dis, uh a vaccination program and the distribution of it. And um, he said, you know, it's very common for a vaccine to be delivered on time. It's very common for not a, the amount that was requested to arrive on the time that it was said, you know, essentially the companies are just going to be flat out making it as the best they can and we'll get it when we get it. And, and that's, um, that's the timeline, and that's that's yeah, hey, that's it's, it's good. It's almost <laughs> it's almost refreshing to hear that you know that that your your details sound a lot like our details. Where how how could you say anything different? We'll we'll get it out as quickly as we can, but we can't say hey by next Thursday this many people are going to have it or this many people are going to have it. Are is the minister that's now in charge of? doing this rollout in Britain? Are they talking about healthcare workers first, first responders, long-term care homes, anything to that effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've got that sort of um, triage set up. And the the big one is um, the very first people to get it will be the ones that are in, in, in Ontario, what you call um, nursing homes you know, really elderly, very vulnerable people. So it will be those people and the people that work around the people that live in nursing homes. And then from that, it will go down to in five-year blocks, so everyone over 85 and then everyone over 80, and then break it down. And once you get to about 60, then there's anyone younger than 60 who has, um, you know, a long-term medical condition. So something I would imagine like diabetes or asthma, high blood pressure, those types of things, then you will get, you know, bumped up the, the order. And then at the very, very bottom of it is um, people who are 50. And that's the cutoff. Um, the approval for the vaccine is uh, not suitable for children, for anyone under 16. And um, they'll have to wait, I think, for 
for the next round of things to come through, and that will be because of dosage and stuff like that, I'm guessing. So do they believe that of all the things you just listed, that that those groups could be vaccinated in a very short period of time? Um, they're hoping to have, I think, everybody done by the spring. Wow. So, but the the most uh, the most vulnerable people will get vaccinated by Christmas, I would guess, because they have those systems like you do in Ontario set up. You know, you would you would have a, a um, people from the a, a GPs or have a GP at the nursing home and then it would get prescribed and everybody would would be given it, you know, on Tuesday morning kind of idea from one to the next. And then here to help facilitate it, all the doctors, um, clinics and things like that are, are um, can apply to be eligible to give the vaccine um they go into the schools and give the flu jab so i think they'll probably do that for the younger kids when it gets to that point and they're building um vaccination centers so they've got the army and the um got army guys to build it but also the engineers to help design them so that they can be built in a temporary way Hmm. so that you can you know, plow through more numbers um, every day to get as many people done, just like they've done with the test centers and the Nightingale hospitals, which are the temporary COVID-only, respirator-only hospitals that they have here. Wow. We're talking with Leanne Stanford from England. I guess one last thing, and that is in terms of... Britain being one of the first countries to get vaccinated. Is everybody okay with that? Are they saying, hey, why don't you let another country go first? I know you're in the scientific community and and may not be hearing too, too much on the other side, but have you heard anything like that? Um, Not particularly. The the biggest thing was that um, Dr. The, the question is, you know, oh, I don't know how the, how the um, UK got it approved so quickly compared to, let's say, the United States. And um, the big thing is, is how they collect the data for that. So the drug companies, and this is for any drug, the drug companies collect data and then it gets submitted to the approval boards, right? And so that's either in um, the United States or there's one in Canada or there's one in England. And but the thing is in England they trust the the summary data from the drug company. So the drug company says, here are my results, here's the graph, here are the results. Whereas in the United States they say, Oh no, we want all the raw data, we will reanalyze it ourselves and look at that, compare it to the numbers that you're giving us and what you say your results are. And from that, we will decide whether or not we'll approve your drug. But that all takes time. So it's essentially, you know, getting to the same end. But the way the American system and Canada, because it's similar to the American system, it just takes more time because they have to reanalyze everything. 
Well, Leanne, it's great getting a picture of how things are going in another country that's probably a little ways ahead of us. Uh, be safe, and uh, it's always great talking to you. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, no problem. Everybody have a happy Christmas, as they say here. And um, <laughs> stay safe and wear your mask. Is it St. Nicholas who comes to visit in England? It's Father Christmas. Father Christmas. Right. Father, Father who is essentially sent, but Father Christmas. Yes, and well, he's been given, um, he's at the top of the list, actually. Oh, good. announced on the news. He's at the top of the list so that he will be safe from coronavirus. Love it. Leanne, thanks. All right. Take care. That is Leanne Stanford in England, giving us a picture of what England looks like and, and some of the things that they are talking about, right down to Father Christmas, top of the list to get the vaccine. And right now, we get an opportunity to talk with Dr. Thomas Cook, as we do each and every Monday. Dr. Cook is a privacy, ethics, and internal threat assessment manager at the Center for Advanced Computing, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, how's Monday? Oh, it's it's Monday. I mean, I'm very interested in everything else that's going on in the province and, in course, of course, in the world of privacy as well. But you know what? For uh, an early December Monday, it's it's not all that bad, Mike. Thanks for asking. Good. Good. Well, we're going to get into a conversation about something that may become more of, I guess, uh, an existence in our lives. And as much as we have done a lot of Zoom meetings and Zoom calls, there are businesses right now who are saying things like, hey, if we're sending our employees home, are we losing time and productivity? Are they truly giving the amount of time they would if they were in our workplace and so how do we monitor that and that's a conversation that takes us in one direction but maybe the gateway to it right now is students and tests where if we're looking for accountability among students universities post-secondary education uh, is looking at kind of how do they do things like have exams and make sure that everybody is doing things on the up and up, a la the workers who are working from home. What are you finding as we now head into exam season in post-secondary institutions? What I'm finding is not pretty, to say the least, Mike. Um, being a, a privacy and surveillance scholar myself, I have to say that um, the development in terms of remote proctoring, which I'll explain more in a moment, are probably the most significant and significant in terms of obvious surveillance issues, obvious privacy violations. And and so what I mean by remote proctoring, and I think that's what you're getting at as well here, is the idea that a service could be used by a university like Proctorio to directly watch a student while they're conducting an exam on their computer at home or in a public library. Now I, I said direct because this also can be indirect. The most popular method, Mike, if the technology and the access is available, is to have a proctor. So in in a university classroom, a proctor is somebody who is like a graduate student or a recent undergrad graduate who is paid to walk around the exam room and make sure the students are cheating. So they're checking for notes written on the inside of the label of a pot bottle. They're looking for people who have 
drawing notes on their hands and, you know, people that are, you know, sneaking peeks into their phones or whatever when they're going to the washroom. So a remote proctoring service online is literally having one of those people sit at their computer with a webcam plus a bunch of different tools that aid them as they're watching the student conduct the test or the exam and indirect in the sense that artificial intelligence is used to watch a recording of the student while they're conducting an exam. So as you might imagine, there are a number of concerns here. Yes. Okay. So let's look at this from a privacy perspective because, hey, if you're writing an exam and you're having a proctor in a regular exam hall, you think about Western University Alumni Hall on the stage of Alumni Hall. And I'm trying to think whether you wanted to be on the stage or you didn't want to be on the stage. <laughs> One of them had a difficult view of the clock, so it was difficult to see the clock, and you weren't supposed to be looking at your arms and your hands or having any gadgets near you. So there was a clock on the wall that you wanted to use. It was. It's either difficult to see it from the stage or it's either. That doesn't matter. But if you have somebody walking around proctoring during the exam, you would think, well, hey, you've got to have some sort of check or balance. I talked about my own experience five minutes ago of just hoping that the students would do it the honest way. And I really believe they did, judging by the class average, which was actually a, actually a smidge lower this year than it was last year when we were doing it in person. I think it worked out okay. So what is, what's the privacy issue in all of this of saying, hey, we're, we're just going to have a check and balance on you? I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have minded that. Yeah, I really like the way you're going with this, Mike. There's a number of privacy concerns here, and I, I want to start very generally. Let's go back to the idea of having a proctor in a classroom. Their presence disincentivizes people who might want to cheat from doing it. By knowing that somebody's floating and and might be checking on certain things, why would somebody want to take the risk of getting caught and potentially failing or leading to expulsion or whatever you have, right? But the the presence is, is a political technology, and it's a powerful one. It's a disciplinary tool. That's what we need to think about when it comes to a proctor. Now, when you situate that in somebody's home, now you've, you've really changed the the field. I, the metaphor is elusive to me. You're the sports guy. You can let me know later. But <laughs> you've changed the playing field. There we go. Because nice. what you're doing is, thank you. <laughs> if you use somebody's uh, webcam, uh, what we're seeing in the case of Proctorio, for example, one of the, the proctoring services that can be used by university, you can use artificial intelligence that piggybacks off of somebody's camera stream to um, detect for loud noises. And where this has become a problem with with uh, Proctorio in particular, is that a barking dog or a sibling walking by in the background will signal a flag that may either interrupt the exam or launch an investigation into the student thereafter. Another issue with these kinds of services is that when you have somebody sitting on the other end of of the camera that that is either using AI or not, they're able to access not just your camera, but your mic, uh, that's your microphone, excuse me, Uh, what it is that you're doing on your screen, your browsing history of your browser. Sometimes biometric facial recognition techniques will be used to verify the identity of the student. Eye tracking techniques will be used. Keystrokes will be logged. Um, And in a very uh, recent case, there is a technology education coordinator at the University of British Columbia named Ian Linkletter, who's in the Supreme Court at UBC. He's being sued by Proctorio because he, he was a whistleblower, essentially. He exposed that proctors using Proctorio remotely we're using a 360-degree panoramic feature that was hidden in some webcams to, to look at people's houses when they were conducting their exams. So, 
yes, you have like the disciplinary effect of a virtual proctor in your house, which is intimidating enough. But then the tools that they're given stretch far beyond what a normal proctor receives. And this really raises significant privacy concerns, I think. Wow. I mean, it's one thing to think, well, we want to make sure that the student is not cheating. And okay, I get that. And there are students who would have somebody else take their exam if they could and all of those sorts of things. But you wouldn't necessarily expect the other end of it to be making use of you know, the the added power that they'd been given. That's wild that they would have a camera to look around or, or be recording keystrokes or, or using information. That I don't know. Maybe I'm just naive, but I wouldn't think that it would be coming from that. So what are universities left to do then? Well, unfortunately, most universities aren't thinking smart about this. Proctorio is enlisted by over a 1,000 universities worldwide right now. Proctorio is in charge of 30 million exams to date, just this year. Um, you know, if, if universities were thinking this through, if they were listening to their surveillance and privacy studies folk, if they talked to the political scientists and they asked questions about, like, theories of surveillance and the kinds of implications it has on people's psyche, on the way they feel about themselves as human beings, you would never do this. What we're seeing, actually, is that most universities who have justified using the software are saying things like desperate times call for desperate measures. And I, I refuse to accept this, not just because of the privacy issue, but for two other issues that I'm going to briefly outline for you, Mike. Accessibility issues that a declaration like this completely takes for granted. This software presumes, Proctorio, presumes that most students are neurotypical students who don't have, for example, eye movement abnormalities. When I'm stressed, myself as an individual, I get one lazy eye. My, my left eye will look inwards. I've actually had people accuse me of not making eye contact with them when I was stressed out. I can't control that. And I can't imagine that a student would as well. If you have ADHD, you have to disclose to a proctor that you don't know, who works for a third party that is not an employee of the university, your health records to prove that you have a disability that needs extra assistance. People who are, excuse me, students who are people of color, black or brown, have reported difficulty having their identity verified because the facial recognition algorithm is having trouble identifying who they are, which cuts into exam time and increases stress. So that's one of the extra issues, and it's a huge one. The second one is that the idea of proctoring presumes that the kind of learning that is most important in university uh, is, is learning that depends upon remembering stuff. Now, I'm a social scientist, and I can't speak for people that deal with standardized knowledge, like in the medical sciences, where you have to memorize the code sequence for some genomic something or other. That's <laughs> not my ballpark. I'm a critical thinker. And according to Bloom's taxonomy, which is like a new way for thinking about the best kind of learning that can take place in higher education, is that we should be encouraging students to analyze and to evaluate and create, to be creative. That's how we should be testing students. If you're administering a test that depends upon a student's ability to memorize things, you're not only out of touch with the best way to teach, I think, according to most pedagogical research now, but you're also committing students to thinking in antiquated ways. If you're presuming that a student is going to cheat because they're going to alt-tab and go onto a browser to look up the answers for the exam, 
you're creating an exam that shouldn't be used, frankly, in 2020 anyhow. So as I mentioned, it's not just privacy issues here. There's also health and accessibility. And there's also this message that universities are sending to students that says, we're trying to encourage you to memorize things better, but we know matter-of-factly that literature suggests that you will be a more functional undergraduate success if we teach you to be creative. And this proctoring technology makes that impossible to do effectively. Wow. You know what? That's Hopefully this conversation is had, because like you're saying, this has been responsible. Proctor has, uh, has or Procto, is it? What, who's Proct- the company again? Proctorio. Proctorio. So it's been responsible for over, you know, tens of millions of exams. But here's hoping that we have this conversation because you're exactly right. When you've got the Internet to look up the memorization type stuff, you do have to go further because, you know, to get yourself out into the world and be productive. I hope this conversation is being had other than universities just saying, okay, how do, how do we get through this? This is one of those things we all need to look back at and learn from. Dr. Cook, thank you so much for bringing it to our attention today. This has been fascinating. Thank you for having the opportunity to talk about this publicly. I think it's extremely important. If you have your kids who are students in universities, these are conversations that you want to be having with them to make sure that all of the issues that we discussed are not being uh, overlooked by the people that you're paying their education. Thanks very much, London. Have a great day. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy, Ethics, and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Center for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center, both at Queen's University. So look up Proctorio if you do have any post-secondary age students within your reach. Make sure you have a conversation with them. Ask them about this. Have they encountered it? You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.